Previously on Storyological. <laughs> you know what we didn't even talk about in the brain transfer thing? What is that? The inside of the box. Like, I mean, how, um, what you would copy out of a brain to make consciousness happen. None of the abuse. Uh, that is a surprising answer. <laughs> Not only would you have to know broadly what electrical signals do, I mean, what electrical signals to take. How memory is stored, all the rest uh, of it. Yeah, yeah, you'd have to be able to zero in on a specific kind of abuse. And then you get to that uh, yin-yang truth of the universe, I feel. It's unlikely you would ever be able to pull out abuse without also pulling out love and happiness and it's true. anything that um, mattered. It's just where my mind was after reading Brokeback Mountain, that how damaged those guys were by the lives that they'd lived and would their lives be better overall if they had never suffered that abuse and never met each other. Uh, the pragmatic person would say, yeah, but that doesn't, maybe they would have been happier without the, the love or the pain. Yeah. Um, I think I take, um, what's the word? A non-causal view of such things. I feel like living my life believing that avoiding abuse or pain will lead me to have less connection to the world. But that is a uh, like an a priori like belief mm -hmm. about the world. It doesn't mean that after the fact I would I would necessarily be right to think, man, I'm glad that I suffered that much <laughs> so that I could have that one moment of happiness. Um, yeah, it's all. It's yeah, like, it's most important in the way the fear of the fear informs your decision making and and allows you to judge the risk right yeah yeah um yeah and that's that's brokeback mountain this is story logical a podcast about amazing stories that we kind of like i'm chris camarud and i'm eg kosh so just a warning today's episode we're talking about two stories both of them about in one form or another abuse of a sexual nature one homophobic one predatory. If you'd like to skip this episode, that's cool. Yeah, we will understand. So my pick for this week is Brokeback Mountain, which is a story written by Annie Proulx and from The New Yorker in 1997 or 1998, I think. It is the love story of two men, one named Jack and one named Ennis, grown up poor and rough in the wild plains and mountains of Wyoming. I'm basically making up landscape features right now. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Just imagine I don't even really stoic, know Wyoming is. rough, and yet particular, beautifully realized human beings who have grown up in a culture that is perhaps not really open to the love of two men. Or any, uh, any love. Or perhaps any love. Yeah, that is true. Like the, the story's power in part comes from the fact it's not just the love story of these two men. It's the way that their broken love story falls out across all of their loves and that their failure to love each other is not just because they're two men. It is because they are men who perhaps in this culture that is homophobic is also love phobic. Mm -hmm. And the story takes us really through 40 years of their of their life and their occasional trysts together and the the slow tearing away at who they are and what they might be. Yeah, it's a love story told in in its absence more than most, uh, you know, more than their togetherness. In a sense, though, one of the things I wanted to talk about with the story is how it uses summary of how everything in the story, the, the gaps in their life, 
that the time that takes us from when they're 14 all the way until they're in their 40s is all told in summary, mm-hmm. except for when they're together. Yeah. So in that sense, it doesn't feel like the love story is absent or in the background. It feels like all of their lives that isn't their time together is the background, is the summary. And yet that is what they go back to over and yeah. over again. What tears you apart is that it becomes clear that Jack uh, is not so interested in going back to that life, but he goes back to it again and again because he wants to keep seeing Ennis. He can't. I think that's what I was trying to get at. Not that it was the story was about what happened outside of their love affair, but that their love affair spanned this huge long time, huge time period but um, occupied very few days in each year when they saw each other. And so their lives were about the absence of each other and their, particularly Ennis's refusal to acknowledge that it was some kind of real relationship or could be a real thing where they, they spent their time and their lives together. I feel like Ennis's refusal is, oh, I don't know, it's just so hard for me to come down on Ennis or condemn him or, or to, to call it a refusal so much as fear. He acknowledges that this thing is real. But what he does is he doesn't say that this isn't real. Every time they meet, he says something along the lines of, oh, it's too late. We can't do anything different. Uh, and also, I don't want to die. Mm-hmm. Which, which uh, seems a legit issue. Something, something that I found really challenging about the story, but then eventually grew to love, was the, the style and the vernacular of the prose. So it's written in that kind of I'm going to call it outback even though that's an Australian term that outback kind of rancher accent where you know it's written somewhat phonetically on the page so it was kind of difficult for me to get from that and also the structure of the sentences are kind of structured in that accent and then also the word choice is from that place as well so I've got these three things that are working to make it difficult for me to to get into what they're saying but what leaps out at you right from the get-go is the rough kind of existence that suppresses emotion and makes sure that it's known that any kind of um, indulgence is not okay. Uh, you can, <laughs> I think I wrote down, you can hear the five-day stubble in the in the prose and the way it works. Um, there's one one paragraph I want, or one sentence I wanted to read um, that's early on when Annie is kind of introducing the characters, giving a bit of their backstory. And this is about uh, Ennis. He'd wanted to be a sophomore, felt like the world, the word carried a kind of distinction, but the truck broke down short of it, pitching him directly into ranch work. And I love how in a single sentence she leaps between a character's internal desire um, a metaphorical movement, a literal challenge that he was facing with the truck and then how that truck just kind of threw him into this life. And I, she does it all inside of what, I don't know, 15, 20 words. <laughs> it's incredible. The way that she writes through time, there are a density of moments and choices and failures packed into everything. So that, that sentence you read, it made me think of one of the questions I asked myself uh, when I finished the story which was, what do we mean by be specific? Which is something that if you take writing classes or you know someone who knows how to write, you will hear that. They will tell you, you need to be specific. Um, and we talked about a story a few weeks ago called Ponies that had Top Girl and had the other girls. 
and nowhere did it say really what their names were or where they lived. It had a very different specificity than Brokeback Mountain, which is about Jack and it is about Ennis, and it is about two $5 bills in a rusted out can, cans of baked beans with dirty spoons in them. It's about the sound of a, of a belt buckle hitting the ground. And yet both stories are specific. They, they occupy very different ranges, let's mm-hmm. say, on the plains of specificity, where Kids Johnson is out in a kind of almost platonic specificity, where she is being very specifically metaphorical and metaphorical and platonic. I don't know if that's a thing that, that something can be. She's being very specifically vague is the words that I used before um, about an emotional experience. Whereas here, in a way that, yes, it might fit what is thought of as a literary style, but really it just fits who the characters are in the story she's telling. The, the emotional life is rendered through the specificness of this place and these people Mm. it's not happening at all the story is not happening at all for you uh inside them because they are keeping the inside somewhere very close yeah i really enjoyed how the environment that they were living in she depicted it in such a in a way that totally reflected that kind of pain and anger and desire and urgency inside of them and and how Brokeback Mountain, when they go up there for the first time, it represents a kind of freedom that they've never had before, a freedom from this harsh, abusive kind of upbringing. And the the sentence that she says when they go up is, uh, you know, Brokeback Mountain with its flowery meadows and coursing endless wind. And it just gives this sense of suddenly they can breathe out. Suddenly the only other people around them are each other and although they don't know each other yet they quickly develop this incredible rapport where they're able to just be themselves and respect each other and they're the first person to have ever given the other respect they they were respectful of each other's opinions each glad to have a companion when none had been expected and then ennis thought he'd never had such a good time he felt he could pour the white out of the moon yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah, beautiful prose does not have to be fancy. It can be basic and urgent. And Yeah. Though what I love about that is it is leaping into almost fancy. Like, I feel like, I mean, you're, you're I think you're, like that word is maybe coming from your experience, but it also, I don't know if it's also coming from the story and that you're right. That would be an insult to these men. They would not ever want to be described as fancy. Um, and yet the language... It becomes poetic at the moments when those men are closest to escaping the the bounds of who they have been. And so that moment where he could paw the white out of the moon is poetic. Something else about that time on Brokeback Mountain is something about the way that Annie Prohl deploys homophobia in her story, which comes in, let's say, three styles. I don't know if there are three styles yet, but we'll see if I get to three. One is indirect. So, you know, indirect to the point of almost being a metaphor, like an allegory. Like there's a man who says, you two boys go up on that mountain. One of you needs to go over on that side. One of you needs to go over there. And don't, don't be in the same place at night. Now, he is not telling them that because he wants them to not have sex together. But the story happily deploys him as a like, you men go up there and stay apart. And you um, think- I just want to say before you go into number two, yeah. you think of it later when he refuses to rehire Ennis because he'd seen them ganging it up. 
Well, yeah, yeah. At that point, that is number two, which is direct interaction with the characters where we find out that dude whipped out his binoculars once and watched them have sex and then judged them for it. So there's the first, which is basically allegory, metaphor, very deep, uh, but right on the surface. Uh, The second is direct interaction with characters. The third is represented by one thing, which is Ennis's memory of his father taking him to see the bludgeoned gay man who had been beaten by a tire iron. Right, so that, that third thing is not directly in the story, but it, it overwhelms the story. And so something that I loved is in the same way that you describe the description of the mountain as perfectly pitched so that the description is both very specific but clearly ripping out the emotional uh, content of the scene. The, the violence that Ennis was made to see by his dad stands in for the entirety of basically, of homic folk culture and the way that men and the, and the fathers of men uh, almost shoved each other's faces in it, like the, that it was something that you had to see. You had to understand that this kind of life was wrong. Um, it's, it's almost like a parent might put a child's hand near the fire to show them that it's hot. It's like, this is a, this is a rule of life. It's just the way it is. I'm going to show you it's dangerous, so don't go there. Yeah, yeah. And the reason why I love that is because it the story does not become about Innes does not want to live his life with Jack because he lives in a society that is homophobic and that really makes it hard for gay people. That is true. And that is, you know, if you ask Annie Proulx what the story is about. But we experience it as Innes is afraid of a tire iron hitting him in the face. Mm. And now we are afraid of that tire iron. And it becomes... Back to that specificity. Yeah, yeah, back to specificity. And it's, it, it's a credit to both of these writers, Kit Johnson and Annie Proulx. They know where they are in the range of specificity. And neither one of them strays mm. towards the other. They know which specificity they want to do, and they hit it. And the importance of that is because no one lies awake at night afraid of homophobia they lie right. awake at night afraid of a tire iron in the face right right exactly yeah yeah that's exactly the thing and that's what that's what you would get hammered into that's the yeah. anyway what gets hammered into you in writing classes no one lies awake afraid of the big scary concept yeah there's something in it and in the same way no one would care if kids johnson wrote a story about belonging if there weren't ponies getting their horns cut off like yeah. That is, it's not specific to anything. Literal? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we're back to that, that place. It's, anyway, it's fascinating to me, more than we can delve into in a podcast, perhaps, about the, the different sorts of specificity. I'm seeing, I'm seeing a, a Cartesian layout on one axis is abstraction, yes. and on the other axis is, um, I don't know. I don't know, but yeah, yeah, I was thinking that too, that we we just need to follow this through because there's a kind of Scott McCloud diagram to be made with quadrants mm-hmm. that will help us help us see this. You mentioned the dialogue. There was a moment in the story where I almost felt like I was reading a George Saunders story. Uh, and it's this moment right here. It is when Jack and Ennis have met for the first time after Brokeback Mountain. Uh, Jack has come to see him after four years, and they immediately kissed on the porch, even though Alma, Ennis's wife, was right there. And then, I love how, in an attempt at explanation, Ennis was like, 
I haven't seen this guy for four years. <laughs> and she's just like <laughs> stony faced, says nothing. Yeah, yeah. Um, she's as hard as the other, you know, as those guys. Yeah, 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 yeah. We'll we'll get back to Alma real quick. Um, the in that in that hotel scene, friend said, Jack, we got us a fucking situation here. Got to figure out what to do. I doubt there's nothing we can... Sorry, I can't. If I slip into the accent, that will that might take away from the gravitas. Um, I doubt there's nothing we can do, said Ennis. What I'm saying, Jack, I built a life up in them years. Love my little girls. Alma, it ain't her fault. You got your baby and wife, that place in Texas. You and me can't hardly be decent together if what happened back there... He's jer- he jerked his head in the direction of the apartment. Grabs us like that. We do that in the wrong place, we'll be dead. There's no reins on this one. It scares the piss out of me. Now, the George Saunders bit is almost everything before the death uh it gets dragged in uh it reminded me of saunders because one like him she allows her characters to speak in a way that is very particular to them she allows her characters to describe themselves in their dialogue and describe their fears and describe their conflicts and the thing that was saundersian to me in the way she did that is that they are there is clearly one saying this is the thing and another one saying well there's all this other stuff that we have to consider. You know, the way that Saunders will often deploy uh, somebody in their life who is constantly coming up with rationalizations and excuses for why they can't be who they want to be, why they can't do what they know maybe they should do. Um, but then, you know, that the dialogue goes to, or oh, we might be dead. And that, that amazing thing that to me, like what, exactly what you said about descriptions, her dialogue is specific to them and yet immediately ropes us into some deep kind of universal emotion we can understand that bit where he says there's no reins on this one it scares the piss out of me Mm. bam Ennis describes the situation and says you know the thing that's tearing his heart to pieces which is he's so afraid you know i read this story and i was so fucking angry afterwards i i knew it was a sad broken-hearted love story but it made me rage at the society that that normalized homophobia to the extent that these guys are so broken I, mm. I raged at their upbringing their parents who one of them tells a story about his dad pissing on him um these guys have lived lives with zero hugs and <laughs> and i just you know she does a perfect job of making me want to fix it all for them yeah she does uh and i love like you mentioned respect earlier i love how inside the story and the way that she writes these all of the characters alma as well it feels like she respects them and loves them enough to not ask them to be different than what they are mm-hmm. which is something that, that i read an interview with her in the paris review where she talked about what she said was i wish that i hadn't written brokeback mountain and it was not because you know she felt like it was a bad story it was because after the movie, she described being inundated with letters, often from men who would begin their letters by saying, I'm not gay, but... And she would basically get, this is the way she described it, a, a kind of fan fiction of, of different ways the story could end, of ways that Ennis maybe broke free and had more lovers after Jack died because, you know, he could now live a better life. She describes these characters as belonging to her by law, but it was almost to me in the description of of who these men were and wanting the story to have an unhappy ending because it was about the culture that had been implanted in them and about the tragedy of it. I felt like I heard the echo of this feeling that I 
that I had that like the that she would feel changing the the story to have a happy ending would not only be maybe missing the point about the culture, but would be in a sense making these men be different because you feel like it will make you feel better mm, that you yeah. will have a happier time reading these stories if these people were different. I certainly would feel happier, but I wouldn't feel so strongly. And when it comes to fiction, I'll take a strong feeling over a happy feeling any day. So my pick for this week is The Lake by Tananarive Due. I'm sorry, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. I hope I'm somewhere in the ballpark. Um, and it's from her collection Ghost Summer, which has just won the, the British Fantasy Society Prize for the best collection. And so as part of that jury, I've been super excited about this collection for a long time and holding out talking about it on the podcast because I felt like I shouldn't really expose my enthusiasm until after the, the prize was awarded. But now, now I can let it run free, my enthusiasm for, for the whole collection, but mainly for this story, The Lake. So it's uh, a story about a girl or a lady, Abby Lafleur, who moves from Boston to Gracetown, uh, which is uh, somewhere out in the, the Moonies in Florida. Is that right? I think I've got that right. You Some... mean the word boonies or Florida? Florida. Florida is a real place. <laughs> no idea if Gracetown is a real place. Okay. Okay. Um, she buys a house on the lake in Gracetown, but instead of being a peaceful escape from her current life and her divorce pain, it turns out that the lake and the town transform her into a monster. And Ooh, interesting description. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, and the story follows her transformation and her... <laughs> surprising acceptance and enthusiasm for it which is kind of horrifying but also much in the way of when we read the bengal ming tiger the other day uh makes you empathize with the baddie oh yeah chris is pointing at his notebook which also mentions the bengal ming it makes you empathize with the antagonist of the story in such a way that <laughs> Chris is apparently not going to need to speak now because I'm just saying everything that he's written in his notebook, pointing it out at me. To the point where, though, unlike the Bengal Ming, where I'm filled with horror and dread about what the tiger is doing, in this story, I'm like, yeah, girl, you go. You kill those children that are swimming in the lake with you. Also, <laughs> I'm horrified with myself. Interesting. <laughs> not, um, not the so I'm just going to jump in. I'll just jump in uh, right up there at the top level. So the description of the story as the um, a story where this woman comes to the town and the town and the lake transform her into a monster, which she seems weirdly excited about. I'll come at it this way. As I started reading the story the second time, I thought, why have you put this memo ahead of the story announcing to us that something horrible is going to happen? And in reading the story, which had made, you know, the second time through, which had made me kind of uncomfortable leading up to it. Like, it seemed like she was oddly fixating on the boys that she was going to bring over. It became obvious in the second reading. Oh, the reason why she put that warning at the top is that all the way in the beginning, there are these little caverns, little secrets, dark closets that she's left cracked open. Lines like, it's where she says, oh, maybe I can start over in this town where she says, oh, wow, I'm naked in the backyard. There will already be a scandal, as though there had been a scandal before in the place. There's the bit where she starts thinking about getting boys to come over to her house, and she says this line, there were always willing boys. So 
I oh, feel she's like, always been the monster in the right. So I feel like she she put that mark of dread at the beginning, so that when you read those lines and you felt like it was a bit squishy, you wouldn't just feel like it was squishy. You would glimpse that there was something horrible in her. I would be mm. really disappointed if when I read this story, I felt like the lake had turned this normal person into a monster. Yeah, uh, I feel. Go on. I felt like exactly what reminded me of infamous Bingo Ming is this woman is a tiger. And she is trying to delude herself that she is just a regular human being who also has friends and lives a good life. That is also true in the same way that the, the tiger Bingo Ming was also not a tiger, like it, in the sense that it was a person. It had it, it was Ming. It had feelings. So I felt like exactly like Bingo Ming. This story was a story of the of the lake ripping out more of that monstrous nature and her ultimately accepting it rather than fighting it. Yeah, I think you're right. I think my introductory description was simplistic and that it it is about drawing out what is inside of her, absolutely. Um, and the one of the things that the prose does so beautifully is not just with that introductory section, but, but kind of the trailing sentence in so many scenes or so many paragraphs is... Uh, leads us into this sense of foreboding about what's going to happen. Like whether it is, um, you know, there were always boys or, you know, she shouldn't do this or if only she had known, but there was no one there to tell her. And I really enjoyed the way those sentences tumbled us forward with this sense of urgent fear. Yeah, yeah. Can I read you one of my favorites? Please. Young adults had to make decisions for themselves, especially boys. Or how would they learn to be men? That was what she and Mary Kay had always believed. Anyone who thought different was just being politically correct. It's a, Her friendship with Mary Kay is a really interesting element of this story. So all through the story, Mary Kay is not present. We never see her have a conversation or hear her have a conversation with Mary Kay, except in flashback. But she is there, I guess, is this conscience that um, the... Though, though she also married a younger boy. <laughs> Perhaps... Yes, but I feel like Abby's denial or continued refusal to contact Mary, but but her continued engagement with what would Mary say about this? Or oh, Mary would have an opinion on this. Or oh, Mary would tell me this is a terrible idea. Like she perceives her as a kind of conscience figure. I felt like she saw that friend as both angel and devil. She could see in her both someone that would tell her the right thing supposedly to do, but also, hey, didn't she also do this thing? And that was totally fine, right? Even though some people thought it was weird and, and bizarre. She and her probably younger person that got married made it through all of the trials and tribulations. Mm -hmm. And gosh, you know, Abby was really torn up by that trial that Mary Kay had to go through. Secrets was something that I felt like was essential to the way the, the structure of the story worked. Because at the very beginning, the town that she is moving to in Florida called Grace Town, the already horror movie scary. Why would you ever call a town Grace Town? <laughs> Clearly something ungraceful is going to happen there. Uh, unless you think of evil as possessing its own kind of grace, which I suppose it does. Grace Town did not tell her that the lake was a scary hotbed of monster making. No one told her. Why did no one tell her? Because Gracetown, perhaps, had learned to keep their stories to themselves. And I was like, oh, it's doing that thing just like in Brokeback Mountain. It is making the place the character. 
The thing about the place that is important to who Abby is is that they have learned to keep the story to themselves. Abby's refusal to tell Mary Kay anything, desire to be in an isolated place, she wants to keep her secrets. Mm. And in the same way that, that homophobia runs throughout Brokeback Mountain, but in a sense is is embedded deep in the specific actions of the characters. That story that we hear about sexual abuse between teachers and students, between figures of authority and the people that are, I'm trying to think of a word other than under or beneath, considering we're talking about sexual abuse, uh, but sure, let's just say the people under them, is is the, the way that shame and power uh, conspire to keep these stories buried, to keep them secret, people to keep the things to themselves and so the secrets feed on secrets and the monsters just eat up all their fill it reminded me of lolita in many ways because like, the first time i read lolita i didn't really i was very young and i didn't really understand the problem of the power dynamic of the child and the the grown man and being so deeply ensconced in humbert humbert's viewpoint he doesn't have any uh, judgment of his own actions, really not not initially, at least. No, and like like all monsters, he's very sentimental. Yeah, both to himself and to other people. And the way he sees Lolita, the way he 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 describes her beauty and that kind of like limpid on the cusp of womanhood, reminded me so much of Derek and the way Abby sees Derek and. Her prose has such an easy grace about it, the way Derek is described as being on his way to being six feet tall. Like, there's this kind of easy loping motion, like you can imagine a young athlete man having. So in Lolita, there there is no judgment inside of that story for Humbert's uh, abuse of this child. Do you mean Humbert doesn't have any judgment of himself, or the story itself has no discernible moral position on what he's doing i feel like the latter even though it is told from his police cell i still feel like yeah i yeah. think i think you're right i think that like i think that there uh, is a choice there that some artists make which is i will endeavor in no way to tell you what you should think about this mm-hmm. other than i'm going to write it in a supremely heightened style that seems by its very nature to make fun of itself but other been, people don't get so, that because it's just beautiful. Yeah, exactly. And it's been quite a while since I read it. Um, I feel like my um, literary ramblings would give me quite a different viewpoint on it yeah, these yeah. days. Um, but but yeah, my point, yeah, your point is that she achieves some of that same feeling inside of this story, that that luscious admiration, inappropriate admiration for the, the nymphette that is Derek. And holds back its judgment in a way that allows us, or certainly allowed me to kind of almost miss it first time around and then go, oh yeah, oh bad. Particularly the the second point, I, I think the story is very wise because it is told from Abby's point of view to not try to tell us because Abby would not try to tell us. We need to be imaginative enough readers to read Abby's, um, what's that word, prevarications? That's a word, right? Sure. Yeah. That's definitely a word. Um, Abby's prevarications, um, her desire to keep secrets. We need to be able to hear the things that she is thinking and wanting, but not even sharing with herself, let alone other people. She wants Derek to come over to fix the house. She lets Derek 
bring a friend eventually. But then she's like, she doesn't really want the friend there. You know, he's just not as cool as Derek. Part of the way that she builds this empathy with the uh, with Abby is by really making us physically present in her body, feeling the itching between the toes as the webbing grows, feeling the kind of sensuous delight as she swoops through the water and dives into the lake and just i really enjoyed that kind of flesh and blood reality of it and it made it made her so convincing as a character and so convincingly unaware of the evil inside well that's exactly it what what feels wise and both more engaging as a reader is the evil is an itch that you just cannot bring yourself not to scratch that's what the evil is. It's not always, well, to be somewhat ridiculous, it, it is not always the mastermind or the, the, the supervillain, you know, that wants to, to rule the world. It is just this, this itch mm. that is so satisfied <laughs> by sliding into the warm folds of a lake, of a lake. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thanks for listening, readers. Those of you who decided, despite the warning, to continue listening, we definitely did not talk about any other stories besides these two, except for all the stories that we mentioned in reference to these two, but mostly we just talked about the sad, sexy times. Mm -hmm. If you want to uh, let us know your thoughts on these stories, you can hit us up on Twitter. We are at Storyological, which is story... Like the word. Oh. Like that one letter in that one alphabet that we decided to use about, I don't know, 500 years ago? Um, and what else? Oh, yeah, logical. logical. Like Plato. You can find and like us on Facebook. We are at facebook.com slash storyological. You can follow Emma on Twitter. She is at E.G. Kosh. And you can follow him on Twitter. He's at Kuvols. <laughs> Review? Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> this works great. I can just hold up a cue card by <laughs> saying a word out loud yeah. and then edit out that <gasps> Eventually word. Eventually I remember what I'm going to ask. Uh, yeah, if you have enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review and some stars. Uh, we love it and it helps other people find us. And for show notes, appropriate gifts, links to past episodes and a chance to subscribe to this podcast, you can always find us at our home on the web. Storylogical.com. Thanks for listening, readers. Happy reading. Why is it that words like these seem to me so dull and cold? Is it because there is no word tender enough to be your name? Yeah, and that's, that's Jimmy sad. Joy, James Joyce, Dubliners, uh, final story, The Dead. Is everybody dead? Um, everybody in this story, yes, published uh, 1914. Yeah. They're, they're dead. <laughs> they're all dead, uh, okay. Yeah, except in the fictional sense. In the, yeah, all of these stories live much longer. The people mm-hmm. in these stories uh, have outlived James. James is dead. James Joyce is... Um, so far as I know, there are no conspiracy theories about the wandering uh, soul. Uh, yeah, soul, stick figure. I don't know. Maybe his the statue in Dublin comes to life. What do they call a statue? I forgot. Uh, Something I, with a stick. I what? Something with a stick. Yeah, prick with a stick. Oh yeah, that was it. I was trying uh, to think. Bloke with a stick. No, that doesn't rhyme. No, Oscar Wilde is the queer with a beer. No, he still doesn't have a beer. That was your first. <laughs> the puff with a and a loof look. Getting some amazing charades 
from Chris with the the Leia people. Um, for our North American listeners, Emma did not just say she was getting an amazing varietal of wine known as Shiraz from me. <laughs> she was, in fact, getting some of that North American game, Charades. Charades. <laughs> 